Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Dreiber hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of the Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. The guest I've invited is Knut Vikoski, one of the world's best biostaticians. His appearance wasn't planned, I may add. Last Friday, I pinged him an email to ask if he'd like to be a guest in the future, to which he replied, now. So I dropped dinner that was in the oven. Uh, I was tired and unprepared, but I rang him up at his home in New York and hit record. So please do excuse any sound quality issues. I cannot promise to have the transcript out today, nor the show notes, but I can promise to have them out tomorrow, so please do check back at podcast.hyperwellbeing.com. Dr. Vikoski received his PhD in computer science from the University of Stuttgart and his SED in medical biometry from Eberhardt Karls University of Tübingen, both Germany. He worked for 15 years with Klaus Dietz, a leading epidemiologist who coined the term reproduction number on epidemiology of HIV before spending 20 years heading the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology and Research Design at the Rockefeller University, New York. Dr. Witkowski is currently the CEO of Astera, a company discovering novel treatments for complex diseases from data of genome-wide association studies. And now, over to the show. The reason I've invited you on is because I believe that there is widespread misinformation. In fact, I would even say we're being misled by media organizations in relation to the coronavirus epidemic. And I've been following yourself for some time, and I've been finding rationale in what you have been saying, and I'm exploring it. And I would like to talk with you for a little bit so that other people can also hear what you have to say and also begin to evaluate it for themselves. I would like you to provide a little introduction to yourself to have a sense that you have a more personal background you could give as it relates to coronavirus so that people can understand the context from which you come from. I have been an epidemiologist for 35 years, serving in Germany and then at the Rockefeller University. And many of the experiences that I have now are reminiscent of what I experienced in the early 90s when HIV was around and people were scared of HIV as they are now scared of SARS. And they feared that HIV would enter the heterosexual population. And very early on in the early 90s, it was quite clear to epidemiologists that that would never happen. Uh, but both there were politicians, there were journalists, and there were also many re- religious groups who were pushing for spreading more fear. Uh, in the end, it was all uh, without any basis. HIV didn't spread in Europe among heterosexuals, as I had predicted. And now we have the same thing, that it's again politicians and media and some physicians spreading fear about a virus that isn't as dangerous as they want people to believe. 
wouldn't you say HIV didn't move to the heterosexual population? Clearly, many heterosexuals have contracted HIV and subsequently went on to AIDS. So I'm assuming you're meaning in some kind of numbers that were projected. Uh, it's really a difference in co- between cultures. And I was talking in Germany and in more general about Caucasian. And yes, some people contracted HIV, but there are no there are no chains of infections within the heterosexual population in Germany or by extension among Caucasians. Okay, and is there anything else you'd like to add on your background there? I was at Eberhard Karls University in Germany in Tübingen with one of the leading European epidemiologists, Eberhard Klaus Dietz. And then I, about 25 years ago, I moved into the, to the United States and spent about 20 years at the Rockefeller University as the head of biostatistics, epidemiology, and research design. I'm in Slovenia. My daughter lives in Austria, a neighboring country. Slovenia borders northern Italy. And yeah, I, I was kept apart from my daughter, a critical period in her life for the longest period of her life, even though she's just a three-hour drive away. And she was taken out of school, has fallen obviously behind in education, was very upset, unable to see me. And then after three months, I was able to go see her, but I was able to take her out for the day, but I wasn't allowed to stay overnight in Austria. I was able to drive around Austria all day with her and visit public places, but she couldn't come back to Slovenia with me. And otherwise you'd face a quarantine on this side and a quarantine on returning her home. And she was uh, distraught at this. It's it's, uh, caused great harm. And then finally she was able to come here after four months. Then I took her clothes shopping. And as you know, Slovenia is the first country in the EU to lift restrictions. But when she went into H&M, they've closed the changing room. And so she can't try clothes on, so then she has to take them to the public toilets, try them on, and take them back. Because allegedly the public toilets, I guess, are safer than changing rooms. And then when she hands clothes back, the clothes are quarantined for a week. So shops are running short on size 38 dresses. And so it began to seem striking that um, this isn't science-based, and it's micromanagement of our personal lives and our family lives. And in Slovenia, I I couldn't help but notice the restrictions began to get eased in April. And yet I just saw decline in cases. By middle of May, it was, hey, uh, the pandemic's declared over. And I watched all of May as the city center became crowded, restaurants filled up. And by the end of May, nobody's wearing masks. And I didn't see, uh, I, I, I I saw the cases falling. So it was a sense of disreality. So then I began to investigate more, and that's led me to paying attention to what you have been saying. The epidemic in Slovenia looks very much like an epidemic that ran its course, its natural course. So it peaked somewhere in late March and then declined, like epidemics do. This is what happens with every respiratory disease epidemic So there is nothing remarkable about that epidemic running through Slovenia, taking its natural course 
and apparently all the interventions had little, if any, effect. So you're saying the lockdown in Slovenia, um, I think, at 16th of March, was was futile? There is no evidence that it did do anything. What, what solution do you see to coronavirus? What options do you think are available? Let me expand upon that. What I noticed was we were told it was going to be a lockdown for a limited period so that hospitals were not overwhelmed. I understood this. I complied. And then uh, it started getting reported back to me in Slovenia that people are, are bored at the hospital because they're not seeing the patients. And then I noticed other people who had very important elective um, procedures and uh, cancer follow-ups had been cancelled. And But if you said to anybody, hey, the people at the hospital are telling me they're really bored, you were told, oh, that's because the lockdown has been so successful. So would you refute this, that the people were, um, the hospitals were emptied? and staff never got the influx of the patients they expected because the lockdown was so successfully. So you ca you categorically refute that? Well, the lockdown was also successful in preventing the sky from falling down. And the proof for that is that the sky didn't fall down. If the lockdown didn't happen, do you think the hospitals would have been fuller of corona, of COVID-19 patients? No, there is no indication that that would have made any difference. Why do you think governments made this choice? People were scared because what they had seen in Italy was that many people died. And initially it wasn't quite obvious that those who died were all people who were very old with many comorbidities in nursing homes that were not well managed. And so it appeared that this would be a flu that is more dangerous than other flus, much more dangerous. And in the meantime, we have learned it is not. Yes, it is more dangerous for those who are older and have several comorbidities, uh, but otherwise, especially for the younger, for the healthy, for the children, it seems actually to be milder than most other flus have been in the recent past. So would you please separate the infection fatality rate from case fatality rate, just so we can set that ground right at the beginning here. These rates are highly overvalued is with respect to the, what they actually tell you, because it is very difficult to identify how many people have actually been infected. Most infections are non-symptomatic, and we haven't yet collected the data from antibody tests and from other tests to actually find out how many people have been infected. We don't know. And so we cannot really calculate a fatality rate. And also with cases, it's very difficult to do because the definition of cases varies over time and between countries. Here in the United States, initially it was you were a case, you died. If you died of the virus, then it was you were a case if you died with the virus. And then you were a case if you died while knowing somebody with the virus. And, and I'm not joking. So the definitions change all the time, and therefore these rates don't really make 
As I'm just looking for a quotation of yours, I ran into something on Twitter. It's a Judy Brandt, and she says she's an SNF nurse. And she has two tweets, and they should be concatenated. And it reads, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but SNF nurse here. Our residents have been isolated for three months. They're dying of sadness. The ones with dementia can't understand why they have been abandoned. The ones without it have lost hope. They deserve the choice of dying alone or dying of COVID with their loved ones. Many would pick option two, i.e. to die with loved ones. Do you have a comment upon that? It's one of the sad things that happened with all that flattening of the curve. That the isolation of those with comorbidities who are at high risk has to be prolonged. If you let the epidemic run its natural course, it's only a short period of time. But if you flatten the curve, then those who are elderly or dementia or other comorbidities, they need to be isolated for a prolonged period of times, and that makes it very difficult for them. And it also puts them at risk because many do not get isolated for that long and then they become infected and back. There's a couple of questions there. So then we have the issue of, I'll call it the morality, that people, they should be given a choice to die with COVID-19 with their loved ones, don't you think? I think that aspect has been totally ignored in all of the discussion. People have not been given the choice to decide how much they want to expose themselves. And as an epidemiologist, it has long been a practice in epidemiology that those who are infectious to be quarantined and those who are vulnerable have to be isolated. But those who are neither, who are healthy, they're left alone and live their life. This has now been turned upside down. Those who are isolated are those who are the healthy. And that has several negative effects, including that those who are vulnerable need to be isolated much longer because the virus cannot spread and create herd immunity among the healthy. Okay, so the the crux of everything, or the linchpin of everything that you have been saying is the, the only viable option is herd immunity. There is no other way to stop a respiratory disease epidemic than herd immunity. You're not of the opinion that the reason the lockdowns are being extended and extended is to wait upon a vaccine. Uh, That is not feasible. We cannot keep the lockdown going for a year or something like that, not even knowing whether a vaccine could ever be developed. Because vaccines against flus are not that effective in the first place, and sometimes it's impossible to develop them. And we have seen with coronaviruses that vaccines actually may make the situation worse. And 
So to wait for a vaccine is plain stupid. And that's unnecessary. Why do you think the internet um, is littered particularly uh, in vaccine yeah, information, headlines, social media? Why do you think vaccines have became the number one topic? In fact, Bill Gates, um, two weeks ago, made a statement that he expects a vaccine by the end of the year and uh, even newborns would be vaccinated. So uh, 7 billion approximately people would be healthy, people would be treated. Do you have any commentary upon that? I don't see first that this virus is, that this vaccine is coming. Um, and the, the second is that we don't really need it. It's nice to have one. And uh, because it shortens the period that is needed to get herd immunity. But those who are vaccinated contribute to that herd immunity. But other than that, it doesn't make much of a difference. I see when it's proposed that we need to reach herd immunity, then people call it a cull. Do you, can you respond to that? Sorry, I didn't get that. A cull? A cull. So uh, you sacrifice the elderly and vulnerable to reach immunity. That is a, the first response people give when you suggest herd immunity. They say then you're, um, yeah, you're, you're putting the, the economy first and you're putting everybody else over the vulnerable. So you're having a cull of the, the population. You're taking out the vulnerable to achieve your selfish ends. Okay, the only thing that social distancing or other in the interventions do is to prolong the epidemic to make sure that at no point in time the hospitals get overwhelmed. It does not reduce the number of people who get infected and the number of people who become ill, the number of people who die. It is just spread out over a longer period of time. Now, during all that time, the, those who are vulnerable need to be isolated. So what happens is if you're doing that social distancing, you're prolonging the time during which the elderly and the, those with comorbidities need to be isolated. So it becomes more difficult for them. And more of them in the end get infected and die. So would you have had any lockdown at all? No, of course not. Would the hospitals have been overwhelmed in that so-called first wave? No. But what we have seen is the lockdown came, at least in New York and other major centers of the epidemic, the lockdown came much too late. So the majority of infections had already happened when the lockdown started. And so the, the curve wasn't flattened in the northeast of the United States or in most of Europe. What we have seen is what we would have seen without the lockdown, although maybe the lockdown sharpened the curve a bit because uh, it fell down a bit faster than it otherwise would. Uh, we see now, however, in the south, and the west of the United States, we see the opposite. We see the lockdown being effective. 
because there the virus got later. And so the lockdown actually prevented infection, flattened the curve. And now, when they stop the lockdown, the infections that were delayed come because herd immunity hasn't been reached. And so now they see the second wave because the infections that need to come to do herd immunity didn't come in the first place. So you still have to get to herd immunity. It just takes more time. Why do you think the British government uh, institute a lockdown? Well, they had actually something that was that all governments should do. They had competing groups of epidemiologists giving them advice. One was Sunetra Gupta from Oxford, and the other was Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College. And unfortunately, Neil Ferguson was more assertive, and therefore he won the debate against Sunetra Gupta, who was more careful and was already at that time uh, considering what we now know is the truth, that a substantial proportion of the population had immunity, cross immunity from other coronaviruses, and so it was never at risk. And Donald Trump, uh, back in February, uh, while he was holding rallies, he said it's just a flu, but he did say there would only be 15 cases by April, and then it would, uh, and it would probably be gone by April. I should say he said there's 15 cases; it'll probably be gone by April, and he wasn't going to let a ship uh, uh, dock because he didn't want to see those few numbers going up. So, is it the flu? And hey, why do you think Donald Trump said, "Hey, the 15 cases will be gone by April"? I don't remember saying in 15 cases. If he said so, then he was grossly underestimating the risk. But still, it is only a flu. People say it's 10 to 20 times. People argue instantly, and you know that, and they'll say it's 10 to 20 times uh, more dangerous. I don't know where these numbers come from. Would you say a case fatality rate of 0.2? All these rates are very difficult to ascertain because we don't even know what the definition of a case is. Is it somebody who has a virus or somebody who may have the virus or somebody who has symptoms that were indicated of having a virus? Everybody is using a different definition of what the case is. And as long as everybody is using a different definition, all of these rates are just numbers pulled out of the air. And you know next, people will go to northern Italy and say, hey, we don't want to be another Bergamo. So why do you think there was such a disaster in Bergamo? Well, because the elderly, and in particular the elderly with comorbidities, were not isolated. They were not put into safe homes that were separated from the circulating virus. And that was a mistake that was also done in Sweden and in the United States. In the United States, it was even worse that some of the governments, because they were so afraid that the hospitals would be overwhelmed, they sent infectious but stable elderly back into the nursing homes 
so that they could infect all the other elderly in the nursing homes. And people have done exactly the opposite of what should be done. And people have done exactly the opposite of what should have been done. They have isolated the children and let the virus get into the nursing homes rather than isolating the vulnerable and let the virus get into the school so that the children and young adults can build herd immunity without, usually without having any symptoms at all. I know, for example, uh, Slovene epidemiologists would say, oh, but the children are in danger because there's some uh, threatening inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID. Okay, that, it's not clear what that association is. Uh, it was, it's very rare. And it was a Kawasaki-like syndrome. So it's similar to an autoimmune disease. And this is something that you would expect if you take children out of their usual environment and put them into a more sterile environment where the immune system doesn't have the challenges that the immune system needs. And in most children, they will survive that. But for some children, the lack of the normal challenges for the immune system may turn the immune system against their own cells. So I think it is associated, but it may well be caused by the lockdown rather than by the virus itself. Okay, so I, I'm in a two, I'm a Scotsman in a two million person <coughs> country, Slovenia. So a few days ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to try and get in contact with uh, the top levels of government and ask. And so I saw um, the professor, um, Bojana Biovic, the professor um, at University of Ljubljana, beside the pre Slovene president. So I tried to reach out to her. Um, immediately wasn't successful, but on the way, I uh, ran into a Christina Nandra, infectious disease and epidemiologist um, at the hospital. And as soon as I questioned her, and I'll quote, she said, well, the hospitals were not overwhelmed because we had a lockdown. Otherwise, we'd have had an American or Italian scenario. She said quite a number of people who were very sick were not 50 to 70. One was under 40 and in the ICU. And I responded to her with some counter argument. I expected a discourse. I'm quite willing. I, I don't have an axe to grind. And uh, she ended the, the, uh, the connection on LinkedIn. We were first degree relations. And once I gave her counter argument, Quite politely, she uh, ended that. I emailed her at the University of Ljubljana. I didn't get a response. So I, I find that quite strange. Do, do you have any comments on why you think an uh, epidemiologist would uh, go quiet after a few questions and ignore communications? I, I can't comment on that. Okay, comment on this. Do you think criticized? Do you think that the hospitals in Slovenia would have been overwhelmed without a lockdown? Okay, so she mentioned the United States. I live in New York, the epicenter of the epidemic in the United States. 
there was a hospital ship that came to provide additional ICU units. The hospital ship treated 180 patients and then left. And they created an emergency hospital in the Javits Conference Center, uh, which treated, I think, about 1,000 patients, which in uh, the city of New York is a drop in the bucket. So even in the epicenter of the epidemic New York, there was no real shortage, uh, except maybe in one or two hospitals in some of the uh, less well uh, supported uh, parts of New York. Yeah. But other than that, there was no problem. So I don't think that any country would have any problem. I think Elmhurst claimed it was close to being overwhelmed. Yes. Uh, it's a hospital in Queens where most people going there are poor and don't have health insurance. And hospitals in these poor neighborhoods uh, tend to have problems all the time. And of course, they have problems in these situations. I think what struck me most in everything I've heard you say, as I've been um, observing the past two weeks, and I'm going to quote you here, was this statement. About 500 cases per 100,000 population seems to be indicating herd immunity. Therefore, lockdown preventing herd immunity from building at approximately 500 cases per 100,000. This is for the U.S. Could you explain that? Well, first, I want to uh, say something about the accuracy. You can do exactly the same thing. This is just an observation. In the Northeast and other parts, wherever you had more than 500 or 600 cases, uh, then this was the turning point where the epidemic, the number of new cases went down. In the states where you had less than 200 or 250 cases per 100,000, the epidemic was going up. So this is just a simple description. The only thing is that nobody looked at it before. So um, now to the interpretation, two five hundred cases means many more people were actually infected and are immune. So if these five hundred cases are one percent, that's to make it easy to calculate. One percent of those who got infected originally. That means that we now have 100 times 50, meaning 500, meaning 50,000 people per 100,000 who are immune. That means 50% of the population are immune. And then we have herd immunity. Here's a, unexpectedly, herd immunity is easier to reach because many people simply don't catch the virus even if they're sleeping in the same bed as someone infected. And people are speculating it's uh, cell-mediated immunity or cross-immunity with previous coronavirus. Can you uh, help me out there with the distinctions? Because when you say herd immunity, people seem to mean it means you must have had to get COVID 
I mean, SARS-CoV-2, and get over it. But I think your definition, or you include those with cross-immunity or some other type of innate immunity, which appears to be the case. Of course, those with cross-immunity, those, if there had been a virus, those who have been uh, vaccinated, those who have been vaccinated, or everybody who is immune for whatever reason contributes to herd immunity. And so I, I would like to just emphasize this, because unless I'm misunderstanding something, this is critical. I don't think two months ago, people realized that we had immunity to SARS-CoV-2, or a significant proportion of the population does without ever seeing the virus. Would you agree? This was something, this was something that Sunatra Gupta had already incorporated in the models that she published end of March. Who incorporated? Sumetra Gupta. She was the lead epidemiologist at Oxford University. And this is why the Oxford model, which came out after the imperial model, was so different. They published it and presented it at exactly the same time. Oh, the way the media presented it, it came as, later. but No, it was just that Sumetra Gupta didn't talk about it much earlier. She's a very uh, reserved person, and so it took her a couple of weeks to talk about it. You can look at it. It's on Met Archive, where her publication, uh, Neil Ferguson's publication, my publication are, and you can look into all these publications. They're all there. And so what percentage of the population could, uh, do you think has immunity other than having saw the virus and gotten, gotten over it? Now, this is a very rough estimate, and I'm just pulling that out of my head. Uh, but anyway, so I would say it's about 25%. How many? So 25%. And then if you add the 25% of specific immunity that people have acquired, you're ending up at about 50%. And this 50% is what you need for other community to start in this type of a disease. People speak of 60 to 80 needed. If you let the epidemic run in the end, you have 60 to 80. But that's not what you need for the number of new cases, for the number of new infections to drop dramatically. So you can have herd immunity that lasts for a couple of months, or you can have herd immunity that lasts for a couple of years. If you are just about 50%, uh, it may not last very long. If you have 80%, it will last for 10 years. And all these numbers are just guesswork. It's just to uh, explain the principle. Unfortunately, people will first say, there's not even evidence that once you get over the virus that you cannot get reinfected. We haven't seen that at all. So as long as we don't see anything that's contradicting what we would expect uh, in similar situations, uh, we don't uh, assume that this is wrong. I mean, if you are on the 10th floor somewhere, there is no evidence that proves that if you jump out of the window, you will die as soon as you reach the floor. 
and a few people would challenge that that is a reasonable assumption. Okay. So, to clarify here for listeners, you were saying that if we have a lockdown, we uh, we do flatten the curve. The cases underneath the curve remain the same, but you think that it introduces potentially well introduces more danger because uh, when you stretch out, for one, people are less compliant i.e. they want to see their loved ones in the care home, etc. So you would say if you prolong it, you end up with case more likely cases sneaking in. So you would rather you think it's safer to have something shorter. Is that correct? That's correct. And when it comes to children, have you saw are you aware of evidence that children first transmit? And if they do, if they are sig- significant in transmission? Because from what I understand, it's not even 100% clear if children do transmit. And if they do, it appears that they're very low. And it appears asymptomatics are also very low transmitters, but above that of children. Therefore, you begin to call into question schools closing. But then people will argue the teachers are then at risk, not the children. Okay. Uh, Of course... Whether you transmit the virus or not depends on the virus load. The people who are asymptomatic tend to have a lower viral load than people who are symptomatic. But that's simply because if you have many viruses, uh, then eventually the immune system uh, acts very aggressively and that causes a severe phenotype. If you have only few viruses, the immune system uh, has less to do. It doesn't destroy uh, large areas of your epithelium and or your mucosa, and therefore uh, you have a very mild phenotype. It can be so mild that you don't even recognize. So yes, if you have a mild phenotype, you are less likely to spread. But then children get in very, in very close contact, and eventually. They are expected uh, to still spread, but again, it will be so mild that you don't, it's very difficult to actually follow that unless you test all children all the time. There's been staggering figures in prison population, like in high 90s, have shown presence of antibodies. How does it manage to ramp up so high in a prison population? before herd immunity kicks in? Like, how did we get to those high figures? It's amazing that in the prison population, like four in 100 uh, who had it needed, uh, had uh, symptoms, and 96% say had none. But still, how did the virus manage to spread up to that 96% figure, if what you say about herd immunity is true? I, I, I must be missing something. Okay, uh, many people that if you let it run, it could well go up to 80% in certain populations. Uh, if you have a high basic reproduction number, so if people are very close together, then that level will be higher. So that is not something out of the ordinary. That's what you expect in close populations that are in close contact. And so that brings me on to the question of danger. I... The other day, I think maybe it was two weeks ago, I'm losing track of time, I decided to calculate my 
individual risk. I'm age 44. I think I'm healthy. I calculated at my risk if I became infected and developed COVID, was classified as COVID-19, that I had twice the chance of drowning than dying of COVID. And it was about equal uh, statistics as choking to death on food over a lifetime, I might add. So drowning over a lifetime or choking to death over food over a lifetime. And so would you describe the disease as a danger? Well, we are all at danger of dying. To my knowledge, there's only one case where somebody didn't die, and that was about 2,000 years ago. Uh, we all die. And there are accidents. We are all at risk of dying by an accident uh, all the time. It's called life. And this is just one of the many things that have a low risk of causing our death. And we have never before stopped living because of a low risk of dying. Let me pull up the New York Times headlines in the last week. You may have antibodies after corona. The one of, of toilets, the one of toilets spreading um, the virus? Yeah, flushing the toilet may fling coronavirus aerosols all over. Yeah, that was one New York Times uh, article this week. So should we begin? They come up with all sorts of things. Okay. They say study finds one in five people worldwide at risk of severe COVID-19. New York Times headline again. What do they mean by severe COVID-19? Roughly 1.7 billion people have at least one of the underlying condition health conditions that worsen cases of coronavirus and use analysis shows. So, hey, one in five worldwide at risk of severe COVID-19. So if you say obesity is a risk, one in five people may be obese. And also may, if you add high blood pressure, it's definitely one in five. But that doesn't mean that just being to some level of obese, but then really severely obese, or having been overweight and having high blood pressure, like our president, that this would mean that you are now and, and that your risk is really extremely high. It may be a bit higher than normal. And do you have any thoughts on excess mortality? Let me ask a question this way. If a PCR test had never been invented for SARS-CoV-2, would we be noticing something? Would we be saying, hey, flu season was... 30% worse this year, that type of thing. What do you think, let's play again. What do you think we would notice if we never developed the PCR test for SARS-CoV-2? Nothing. Not even, not even a spike in hospital admission. Well, we had three, we had three spikes this year, or this season. There was one spike at the end of December, and that turned out to be influenza B. And there was one spike in early February, and that turned out to be influenza A. And there was one spike in mid-March, and there was COVID. And the COVID spike was actually lower than the other two spikes. Let me read a quote, quotation of yours. 
What stopped the epidemic and saved lives among the vulnerable everywhere, irrespective of what people have done, was the spread of the virus among those who are at lowest risk so that they would become immune. There is no evidence that the various lockdowns have done anything positive other than improve air quality. There may have been prolonged, they may have prolonged the spread of the virus so it would have more time to sneak into the nursing homes and it let hospitals send infected but stable people back to the nursing homes to infect more of the vulnerable. It sounds to me like you're suggesting we should have done absolutely nothing. That's exactly right. And what do you what do you think is driving this then? Because surely governments don't want a destroyed economy, especially not an election year. Frankly, this is something I do not understand. I understand that in here in the United States, Europe was a bit earlier. In mid March, people were afraid. They had seen the disaster in northern Italy. And they were afraid. Uh, they forgot that there was no disaster whatsoever in South Korea because South Korea was very good at isolating the nursing homes. But anyway, I understand that there was fear. So I understand, even though this is, has never been done before, that people were thinking of a lockdown, isolating the healthy. Uh, but for every, epidemi epi every epidemiologist would say, what is that? Where does that idea even come from? But anyway, so I can understand that. But at least here in the United States, on April the 17th, the director of the CDC showed the data from the IRINET, the hospital emergency rooms report, how often, how many people show up with influenza-like illness. And they had these three peaks that I was talking about, and the COVID peak was in mid-March. So if people come to the nursing home, in, uh, to the emergency room in mid-March, they must have been infected very early in March, because it takes time. And then two weeks later, the number of people showing up was down by more than 50%. And that means the number of infections was already declining rapidly before the shutdown started. Now, that was known in mid-April. And it was also known that the hospital ship and the uh, additional beds in the Jacob Center and in Central Park had not been used. So we knew the reason for the shutdown wasn't there anymore. It wasn't as bad as people feared. It was more or less over. So we could open the economy on April the 18th. Well, it didn't happen. And that is the point where I really don't understand that. I understand that people were scared. But once the evidence was in that there was no risk for the hospital system to be overrun, why not just stop the whole thing? I've no clue. It's pretty horrible images coming from Brazil. 
I don't understand. I have no information about the health system in Brazil. So uh, I cannot assess the images, the quality of the care, the, uh, the capacity of the hospitals. All of that is, I have no data, and so I can't really say much about this. When I look in the BBC as we talk, I see. Lockdowns in Europe saved millions of lives. Are you saying the BBC is wrong in its reporting? Yes. How do you? Okay, we have the issue of politicians, and we we cannot you cannot figure out why they're making made the choices they made. Why are the media organisations then doing reporting of this nature, backing these choices up? So I have been actually. Uh, reported to the German uh, police for asking the Deutsche Tagesschau uh, news program to correct an obvious error. So as a response, they didn't correct the error. They reported me to the police and accused me of violating uh, whatever paragraphs of the German uh, law. Now, this was uh, ignored, or uh, I, I don't know what the correct English word is. Um, so they decided not to pursue this. But I find it interesting that the news are so aggressive against anybody who has a different opinion that they are trying to engage the police uh, to prevent people from engaging in a discussion. I don't know if you're able to speculate, and it would be pure speculation, please tell me if you're unable to, but do you, you, do you think there's commercial interest in the backdrop, e.g. on the vaccine front, that may be driving this instead? Uh, I could see that. I, uh, I see whatever... I don't fully understand what the motivation of the Gates is, for instance, why he is funding and what he is expecting to get back in return. I don't know. Do you think uh, it is transmitted via clothes if we use changing rooms? Like we walk into H&M like my daughter and she changes top and chooses a larger one and puts the medium one back on the rail. Do you think that's a, a transmission route? It, respiratory diseases are transmitted by droplets. So if you are shouting at somebody, sneezing at somebody, singing with somebody, um, kissing somebody, you may transmit the virus. Uh, transmission via clothes is probably as unlikely as transmission by the fumes from a toilet. The British government uh, made it illegal to have sex with someone in a home other than your own. And then later on, after some time, it was legal to have sex with someone from another home as long as it was in the daytime. Um, can you understand that level of um, state micro control of the individual? 
Well, we have seen in the media that it wasn't very effective because even Neil Ferguson was found to violate that rule. And no, I don't understand that. It's very perplexing. And, and frankly, this would not be the major thing I'm holding uh, Neil Ferguson. And the Dutch on. government and British government both um, suggested group masturbation for safety rather than penetrative intercourse. Is that not rather striking to you? Uh, so you have to keep two meters distance? Pardon? You have to be two meters apart from the next? Yes, and also you have to be two meters apart dancing. Yes. Oh, okay, so that's explanation. And so uh, <laughs> it's hard to do this with a straight face. It's a serious topic. And now looking on the BBC, I see bookshops, including Waterstones, intend to put items in quarantine if browsed and not bought. So if you pick up a book, you can't put it back. The book must go into quarantine. Do you understand that? This is absolutely absurd. There is no justification for doing anything like that. This is a flu. We had we have at least one flu every year, and often we have more than one. This year we had three, which is a bit unusual, but hey, things happen. This is a flu. Even if it's a bad flu for the, those with comorbidities, it is still a flu. Coronaviruses are nothing new. We have dozens, if not hundreds, of coronaviruses, and we have survived all of them. So, is it a couple of people die? Yes, uh, every year of the flu. But there is no reason to change our attitude towards flus in general. Uh, for this particular And a couple more questions, if I may. I don't want to keep you too long. I realize we've been quite a while here, and I know you've got a busy schedule. People will instantly show graphs and show that cases are going up. And, and also the media has been pushing this. So you physically see bar graphs with cases going up in the U.S., and so people say this, and the news, even today I was watching CNBC, it was saying coronavirus is getting worse. And it said Donald Trump is saying it will disappear. That's what CNBC was saying was Donald Trump, they were clear, Donald Trump is an idiot. He says it's going to disappear, but we see the cases going up. Now, to make it clear, I'm apolitical. I've never voted in my life. I never plan to vote for reasons I'm happy to answer elsewhere. So I'm apolitical. So do you understand, can, cases are going up, do you agree? Yes. So then people but say it's getting worse. Now, now let me finish my sentence. Yes, but hospital utilization is not going up and deaths are not going up. And that can only be if the definition of cases changes again. So that now, People are called a case that wouldn't have been called a case before. Because if the cases is going are going up now for several weeks, three weeks at least, and the number of hospitalizations is not going up, 
then something strange is happening. It means those who are cases are not really ill. Because otherwise, they would show up in the hospital. There is talk that hospitals were encouraged to mix COVID positives in the U.S., like at Elmhurst, with COVID negatives. I mean, staff were. They certainly, it's claimed that they didn't separate them. I don't know if that's true or you know this. Certainly staff have claimed it's, it's true. And it's claimed that there was great pressure within the hospital to classify people, because I think there was financial incentives of the order of 11 or 13 gave they did. And there's claims it was financial incentives to drive people onto vents instead of use CPAPs, which may have, well, again, staff claim would have been more appropriate because the vents, they, they were getting a 29K reimbursement. Do you have any thoughts on the this uh, reimbursement um, incentives within hospitals in relation to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19? Um, not really, because I have no data to support any of that, although I could see that happen, especially at hospitals that are struggling financially, and Elmhurst is struggling. Coming from your background, are you concerned that other diseases are on the rise because, because of the focus on coronavirus, like because mass immunization efforts worldwide have been halted? Yes, I think that is a disaster that in the end might cause many more deaths than could have been prevented, even though they were not prevented could have been prevented uh, with this uh, ill-thought-through intervention. I'd like to just finish with a couple uh, uh, questions here, um, very observant of the time. In terms of the second wave, which is all over media at the moment, driving a, a fear narrative that I do not feel at this point is warranted, I'll quote yourself. There is no second wave of COVID-19 in the U.S. The second wave is merely experiencing the side effects of a well-intentioned lockdown, preventing herd immunity from building. Could you explain that there is no second wave? What do you mean by that? Once you have herd immunity, it is over, and it's over for a couple of years. So the whole concept of the second wave there's no justification for it. We haven't seen it in a long time. I don't want to go back to 1918, 1919, because that was a very exceptional situation. But in the 100 years since then, we have never seen a second wave. So why now? And you, I see in the news media uh, the protests against lockdown and also Black Lives Matter, but all, to a much lesser extent, I might add being criticized as irresponsible because they will spread the virus. But according to what you're saying, they would actually be helping us get past the virus quicker. And in doing so, protect the vulnerable, correct? No respiratory disease virus could spread in the open. So that is totally absurd. 
So if you are protesting on the street, there is no risk for a virus. Being. Surely somebody, uh, people are, are you, are you saying that masks are pointless? Because the whole narrative there is, we don't want droplets and droplets can go up to 25 feet. And that's what's infecting us at the main route. Okay. Anthony Fauci said masks are there as a sign to show that we are willing to do what he wants us to do. So it's just, so it's a sign of the willingness to comply. It is a modern version of the Tesla head. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. No, handheld. please explain. And the handheld was somebody, a Swiss national hero, who did not want to go in front of the governor's Gessler, Gessler's hat that was put on a pole. And then he was arrested for that and had to shoot or split an apple sitting on his son's head. But the UK has introduced, now introduced a quarantine on people coming into the UK and a 14-day quarantine at that. Do you have a comment there? It seems odd to introduce it in June. No, it's not odd. It's absurd. And so by now, the UK enjoys, like all other European countries, a sufficient level of herd immunity which is what's driving down the number, which is what's causing the number of cases going down because it was driving down the number of infections uh, two or three weeks ago. So to impose anything on people at a time where you already have, or almost have herd immunity, doesn't make any sense. Can you speculate on the percentage in Europe, the UK, or the US that you think already have herd immunity? I think I mentioned that before. I think that Sunatra Gupta was right that at least 25% of people had immunity from previous coronavirus infections. And another 25% has now acquired immunity from this coronavirus. So we are past the time there was a risk. Okay, so I just wondered if there was a great distinction between the US, Europe and the UK. The, the UK is, a, the UK, the virus came to the UK a bit later than to the main, to the continental Europe. And about the same time it got to the U.S. and it may be that Sweden was also, for whatever reason, spared for some time of the virus, and so it got it there later. Uh, we will know the details only uh, in a few months, and historians can go through all the data. But other than that, it's uh, pretty much the same. When I see images of lines drawn outside of shops in the UK, or let, let's take this as an example. My daughter in Austria, she was in a class of 20. 
They've split it into two classes of 10. 10 go Monday, Tuesday. 10 go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. She tells me, but they all meet up after school. She also says the floor has markings on it to keep people a distance apart. But they all get squashed together anyway when they come in in the changing room. Do you do you have any comment upon splitting children up so they only go to school two days per week? So the class sizes are 10 instead of 20. My sister is a principal in Berlin, in Germany, uh, in a school, secondary school that prepares for university. And of course, these schools are never really close because children have to do exams. But otherwise, they couldn't go to the university. So they would have exams under strict distancing rules. They would meet in the main hall and the chair tables there. Uh, at a distance, and when the exam was over, they would meet on the hallway and hug each other. Yeah, my daughter says she meets the people from the other 10 after school. In terms of China, in the news I see at the moment on a ticker talking about a second wave in China. So do you think China is having a second wave? It's not a second wave. China was very effective in quarantining Wuhan or Hubei. So that prevented the virus from getting to other parts of the country, at least not in significant numbers. And now, if it gets somewhere, they might have an epidemic there, but it would not be a second wave, it would be the first wave in a different part of the country. Do you agree with what went on in New Zealand? Because, again, I see straight in front of me praise for a female prime minister and, again, praise for New Zealand having, what uh, the headline says, stamped out coronavirus. Okay. was much different from Australia. Do you see the same praise in Australia? I'm unsure. In fact, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I've had two Australians Australia contact me and say that it's been successful. So both New Zealand and Australia uh, were hit during what's typically not the season for respiratory virus diseases because it was during the summer. And so uh, they had pretty mild outbreaks, which actually may have helped because they may have added to the Community already in the population, so if the virus hits there for the winter, they may be in a better position than they were before. Uh, but I don't think that this, there was anything substantially different from other projects. So, where do you think herd immunity stands in New Zealand? In New Zealand, it's summer. People spend much time outdoors. And if people spend more time outdoors, the basic reproduction number is low. And if the basic reproduction number is low, a low level of herd immunity is sufficient. Okay, so the, the R number is different there. Any, as a fi final question, do you have any predictions for this fall? Should we be living in fear of second waves? Or do you have any commentary upon this year? And is there anything else you wish to cover or say that I did not ask you? Uh, I don't think, I'm not afraid of a second wave 
because what we see now is that people are uh, removing the restrictions of the virus is spreading, and so now we get in those parts of the states and countries where it didn't, and so eventually you will have herd immunity everywhere. Uh, other than that, I think we should prepare for spread, whether it's the second wave or another wave. And one thing, and that is what the company I'm heading now is working on uh, by coming up with treatments that reduce the severity of the initial infection, turning infections into um, something as dangerous as vaccination, but more adaptive than vaccination. In vaccination, you have to give people a particular a vaccine that is targeted for a particular strain of the virus. And if another strain comes, then you hope for cross-immunity. And if there's no cross-immunity, it wouldn't work. If you reduce the severity of the initial infection, then it would work with any virus that is circulating, you could give that to people and protect them uh, against the virus spreading, whatever that virus is. Briefly provide some kind of outlines to what you're proposing. Okay. Viruses need to be taken in by cells via a process that's called endocytosis. And endocytosis is governed, driven, by something that's called the PI system that uses phosphoenocytes, the PIs, to regulate endocytosis. And that system needs phospholipids. And if you're reducing the amount of phospholipids that are available in blood, as you would when you are fasting, you're reducing the level of endocytosis. Less viruses are being taken up. And you're also reducing the levels of phospholipids that are needed to make a new envelope for the virus. So you have a one-two punch against the production of new viruses. And if fewer viruses are being produced during the incubation period, then fewer cells need to be destroyed by the immune system uh, after the week it takes to make antibodies. And when fewer cells are being destroyed, you have a very mild phenotype, and this is exactly what you would have with the vaccine. But you would have the benefit of the vaccine without having to develop a vaccine that is mm. specific to a particular strain of the virus. You have something that would work much more broadly. And so do you, do you have a, an, a, like instantly AZ combined with HCQ comes to mind for that scenario? It's not entirely different. So HCQ was expected to block a particular binding protein that must be on the cell to, for, for the ACE2 for a virus to bind. The problem with HCQ was that this binding protein is not only on the surface of 
cells, but on, of these cells, but also on the surface of other cells where it's needed. And so it can cause other problems. And there are studies around that show that it might actually increase uh, the risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So you may still use it as a treatment. So if somebody has the disease, you can give it to for two weeks. But if you want to use it as a preventive for people to take for two months or three months, or even more, then it's probably not a good idea. You don't want to use something that has, is known to have severe side effects over a longer period. So I think that was clear. And I would like to thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate your expertise, greatly appreciate you trying to enlighten people. I've been following you, as I said, for some time. I haven't found flaws in what you're saying. I do invite anybody else into the conversation. So if anybody else would like to appear in the show and counter what you have said or add to it, then they're most welcome. What I'm interested in is public discourse because it doesn't appear to be taking place and yet it's affecting our lives, already harmed many of our lives. Thank you, Knut, for your time. Thank you, Lee, for having me. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing. <laughs>